Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with Dr. William Evans. He's an adjunct professor of medicine at Duke University Medical Center and human nutrition in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. He has played many significant roles and continues to play pivotal roles in advancing the science of aging and muscle health. Not only that, he is chief of the Human Physiology Laboratory at the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging at Tufts University. He has more than 75,000 citations. He's the author or co-author of more than 300 publications in scientific journals and was the first to describe sarcopenia. He is the co-inventor of a non-invasive and accurate measurement of muscle mass, which is strongly related to health outcomes in older people. For the listener, that is a lot of what we talked about. In this episode, we discussed the surprising fact that we have really only talked about lean body mass versus skeletal muscle mass and made a lot of extrapolations rather than directly measuring skeletal muscle mass. We also talk about what happens to muscle as you age and the age-old question, no pun intended, what is more important? Is it muscle mass or is it muscle strength? And how have we thought about this as it relates to health? This episode is critically important because I believe that this changes the next era of research that is going to be coming out on aging, muscle mass, muscle quality, and strength. I hope you enjoy. As always, if you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, share it, leave a comment, share it with a friend, share it with a family member who needs to hear it. And again, thank you so much for your time and attention. A special thank you to one of the sponsors of the show, and that is Apollo Neuro. I'm sure that you guys have seen on my stories or some of my podcasts that I am wearing the Apollo. The Apollo is one of my favorite devices. It's a wearable that improves your body's capacity to manage stress, to sleep better, stay calm, be focused, be more present, and feel less overwhelmed. I use this thing three hours a day. It was developed by neuroscientists and physicians. The Apollo delivers silent vibrations. Put it on your wrist. You'll feel it and you can control the magnitude of vibrations. I love it, especially instead of that extra cup of coffee, although sometimes I use it, but I like to try to be responsible in my caffeine consumption. And the Apollo wearable is incredible. It helps train the nervous system to cope with the environment better over time. I recommend it to all my friends. And you can get $40 off the Apollo wearable at apolloneuro.com slash Dr. Lion, apolloneuro.com slash Dr. Lion. You'll get $40 off. I know that you guys are going to love this product. I only sync up with products that I use and love myself. A special thank you to Ned for sponsoring this episode of the show. Ned makes a mellow super blend latte for sleep. Oftentimes I consume caffeine later on in the day and then struggle to get to bed, especially if the kids are being crazy or if I have deadlines to meet. This 
Super Blend Chai Latte has functional mushrooms, magnesium, clove, and ginger, chamomile, ashwagandha, without CBD, caffeine, melatonin, or dairy. So Ned shares third-party lab reports. But what I really love about it is it tastes amazing and it works. Here's how we use it in our house. Later on in the afternoon, when we are making our bad decision, drinking caffeine, we will oftentimes mix a scoop of the in a glass, put it in the fridge, take it out about an hour before bed, put a handheld blender in there, maybe a dash of milk, take it and go to sleep. I think that this will absolutely transform your evening. I know that you will love it as much as we do in our house. You can head on over to Hello Ned, that's H E L L O N E D dot com slash Dr. Lion, and you'll get 15% off, or just enter the code Dr. Lion to get 15% off your order. Dr. Bill Evans, thank you so much for coming on the Dr. Gabrielle Lion show. This episode is going to be pivotal for people's education, and I'm going to tell you why. Because for the longest time, we've been talking about lean body mass. And we've been talking about lean body mass as it relates to uh, the hallmark of health, right? And we have not found that there are many correlations of lean body mass versus skeletal muscle mass as it relates to health and wellness. And you, my friend, are creating a whole new paradigm and a whole new era of thinking about skeletal muscle. No pressure. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, it's, it's been an interesting journey. That's for sure. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Sure. Quite extensive. Well, um, I, um, did my graduate uh, program at uh, Ball State University, uh, which at the time and still does, I think has the premier, Human Performance Laboratory. And uh, um, upon completion, <clears throat> I took a position um, as a faculty member at Boston University. And at the same time, I um, did a postdoctoral fellowship in nutrition at MIT under um, the guidance of uh, Dr. Vernon Young. And then uh, I guess I was in the right place at the right time in uh, 1982. There's a, a brand new um, uh, facility being built in downtown Boston called the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging at Tufts University. It was a 13-story facility uh, right downtown in the medical school and dedicated to attempting to understand what the nutritional requirements were uh, for older people. And, and there were a number of different uh, human nutrition research centers, one at, at Baylor, um, the Children's Nutrition Research Center. Ours, ours was uh, for aging. And I was very fortunate to be um, invited to be one of the initial lab directors. And my lab at the time was called the Human Physiology Laboratory to kind of understand the relationship between physical activity um, and uh, nutrition needs and how they might affect older people. 
And so um, I was there for about 11 years. And, and, and during that time, we, we conducted what I think is some really seminal um, uh, studies. I was the first to uh, describe the condition sarcopenia, which um, we can discuss a little bit later. At the time, I defined it as the age-related loss in muscle mass, which I thought would um, ultimately uh, predict, um, you know, disability in late life and other age-related problems. Um, I left uh, Penn State, or I'm sorry, I left uh, Tufts and uh, joined uh, uh, Penn State as the director of what was called the Knoll Laboratory. I got recruited to the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, which had just received a large gift to establish a Center on Aging and Department of Geriatrics. Um, uh, I got recruited after uh, about 11 years in, in Arkansas to GlaxoSmithKline uh, to head up their muscle metabolism uh, discovery unit. I was there for about five years. And uh, now I'm a faculty member at UC Berkeley and at uh, Duke University. So I, I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and then I uh, commute out to Berkeley to teach when I need to. Incredible. Incredible. I would love to start off the conversation. Why don't we talk about sarcopenia? Sure. And why don't we talk about, you know, the rates of sarcopenia? Well, number one, the definition of it and how we can quantify it. And I, I think that that would be a great conversation. Sure. And, and it's, a, it's a good and important question. So, um, you know, the, initially when we were doing a research, we were looking at ways to uh, increase muscle strength. We, we had noticed that um, one of the primary, if not the primary functional deficit that occurs as we grow older is weakness. And weakness then affects almost everything else that we do. So some of the early studies that we did was we took uh, older people and put them on like weightlifting programs and saw that we could double and triple their strength, which was really quite astonishing. And uh, we were able to measure how much muscle they had by using CT scans. We did a, uh, a study in a nursing home, was funded by the National Institute on Aging, in which we took um, older people in their 90s and were able to triple their strength. And, and no one had ever really shown that before. And I think it, it um, really demonstrated the power of exercise and the fact that nobody is too old to start. Our oldest was 98 years old, and we were able to really improve his function. At the same time, you know, we, we showed that his balance was improved, his walking speed was improved, spontaneous activity was improved, and depression was, was affected. And so I thought, you know, it's, it's the amount of muscle that we have that really is the determiner of, of how strong we are, and that was the initial definition, the age-related loss of muscle. So the, the problem is, you know, since that time in the early 90s, there have been dozens and dozens of large what are called cohort studies that have measured what's called lean body mass. And lean body mass isn't only muscle mass. And, and that's one, one of the assumptions has been that 
Muscle mass is exactly the same thing as lean body mass, and it, we know it, that it's not. Lean body mass, you know, in older people, muscle is only about 50% of lean body mass. Lean body mass has uh, water and viscera and um, fibrotic tissue and other uh, components that, that are not muscle. And so after, you know, decades of research, the, the fundamental conclusion was that lean body mass uh, has very little relationship to outcomes in old people. And, and that it's actually strength. If you actually measure how strong people are, that is much more closely aligned to risk of uh, getting a disability. So it was assumed that there must be, if lean body mass isn't really that closely associated with these outcomes, then there must be some intrinsic quality of muscle that's changing. And, and all along, nobody was actually measuring muscle mass. It was me measuring how much muscle you have. Can you say that again? Because, again, your work and the work that you're bringing forward now with D3 creatine is going to change. I think we're going to have to go back and reflect on all the literature and some of the and much of the narrative and much of what we believe to have been good science is, is actually, I think, going to change. So if you could just I, say I, that again. Sure. I think it's fundamentally going to change. You know, it, it, it goes back to maybe the initial definition that muscle mass is actually pretty darn important because, um, you know, and I, I can tell you very briefly what our method is. We, um, we're trying to figure out how do you measure how much muscle someone has. And um, it turns out that, it, you, you know, you've probably most of your audience have heard about creatine and creatine supplements. And it turns out that creatine is really important to how muscle actually functions. And so about 98% of all the creatine in your body is found in muscle. So the idea here is that if somehow we can measure the total amount of creatine in your body, we can actually have a pretty good measurement of how much muscle you have. And it turns out that creatine is not made in muscle. It's made in the liver and the kidney, and then it's actively pumped into muscle cells. And so our idea is we use what's called a stable isotope. It's a, a heavy hydrogen label we put on the molecule creatine. You swallow it. It's a very small capsule with tracer amounts. And then the beauty is, is that it's transported to all your muscles. And then the further beauty of creatine is that it's turned over or it's excreted by the conversion of creatine into creatinine and then lost into urine. And so it's a very simple idea. You, you take this label it gets transported to all your muscles, and then you lose the label through creatinine in urine. So we can take a single urine sample, look at how much of this deuterium label is on the molecule, and then know exactly how much muscle you have in your body. And to frame this for the listener, up until that study, up until this method, what is being used or what has been used is DEXA CT MRI. Right. 
And none of those directly measure skeletal muscle mass. I mean, I, I suppose CT is the gold standard for those listeners. Yeah, or whole body MRI, right. you know, but they're very, very expensive and... and um, not practical. Not very practical. And so that's why this method that you mentioned, DEXA, has been used um, in dozens and dozens and dozens of studies. And... And everybody assumes that it's a surrogate for muscle. And even we get to the fact that even those who think, well, maybe DEXA isn't that great, will we'll measure what's called appendicular lean mass. And so if we just measure the arms and legs, maybe that's a pretty good estimate. And it turns out that um, our method is unrelated to the measures of lean body mass. So what does that mean? So what, what that means is that all of the data um, on the relationship between lean body mass and outcomes is, is wrong, is simply wrong. And so we, we've published now about 15 papers in large, um, large what are called cohort studies, where we've shown that, <clears throat> we first show that cross-sectionally muscle mass is really strongly related to how well you function, what your walking speed is, what your strength is, and, and how much you fall down uh, in old people, in old men. And then looking longitudinally, we've, we've been able to show that muscle mass is, is strongly related to risk of disability, even what's called instrumental activities of daily living, which is kind of like um, your ability to balance your checkbook is related to how much muscle you have. It's related to um, a risk of a hip fracture. It's related to um, um, mortality. And interestingly, the estimates of lean body mass are unrelated to these outcomes. So, That's so, critical. Yeah. Critical so to now, understand. So now we have data that has allowed us to convince reviewers, um, not all reviewers, but, but reviewers such that we've now um, uh, yeah, added this measurement to the Framingham Heart Study. So we're measuring this muscle mass longitudinally in, in Framingham. We've added it to what's called the um, uh, Tobago Longitudinal um, Aging Study, which uh, is measuring uh, African Caribbeans. And we, and we just added it to the Women's Health Initiative, which, which, is, which will be 18,000 measurements in, in older women. So now for the first time, we'll be able to say that, you know, muscle mass is related to these important outcomes. And what that allows us to do really is really focus on muscle, perhaps as the thing that you want to affect. I mean, I think everybody probably realizes that muscle is really important and it's important for for moving around but it's the amount of muscle that you have that appears to be the most important thing so any any things that anything that we can do to ultimately help us in that regard is um you know going to prevent um disability and, and keep us independent this is critical that you're saying that because 
there's a large body of evidence that solely talks about strength in the aging population that muscle mass doesn't necessarily matter because it's really been grouped as lean body mass. Right. And that's right. And, you know, I, I, strength is obviously important. And the reason why it's been important is because if, if lean body mass is a, is a pretty poor predictor of how much muscle you have, strength is probably pretty good. You know, and, and the fact that that strength is related to some of these outcomes is really an indication of um, how much muscle you have as, as we grow older. So, you know, and it's important to, to note that, you know, obviously many of your review, your viewers and listeners, um, we, we think about muscle as important for climbing stairs and moving around. But it's important in a lot of other ways. You know, for example, muscle is the primary determinant of your basal metabolic rate, how many calories you use at rest. And so as you lose muscle, your calorie needs go down and your body fat goes up. Um, it's attached to bones and, and uh, it's called skeletal muscles because it puts stress on bones and muscle probably helps to prevent um, osteoporosis. The more muscle you have, the, the less um, um, bone loss you'll experience. Um, muscle, we now know, um, secretes a whole host of what are called hormones or myokines that have a broad uh, array of um, metabolic effects. And we just published a paper recently in Older Women that shows the amount of muscle that you have is really associated with the, your risk of diabetes, your glycemic control. So, so muscle has a lot of obviously really important functional uh, outcomes, but it, the metabolic outcomes are probably just as important. Critical. And the, the listeners um, would totally agree. We, we talk about muscle as the organ of longevity. We talk about myokines, things that are, yeah. that are very, very critical. Um, and often... I think the longevity, the, the, you're, you're calling it the longevity organ is, is, is absolutely correct, probably more so than any other organ or organ system that we have. I agree, my friend. And, you know, one of the things that has become an issue is we've always focused on obesity or in the literature, it is all about obesity rather than the preservation of muscle. We are very obese centric versus muscle centric. And that yeah. has created uh, quite a bit of issues as it relates to how do we move forward for people? Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. We, we published a paper not too long ago there is kind of what, what you're talking about, a syndrome that some people have called sarcopenic obesity. And the, the idea is that in older people that have low muscle mass, if you have more fat, that's really bad. And we published a paper um, recently that, that said, no, that's not true. The fat is far less important, even in obese people, than how much muscle they have. And so the, the term sarcopenic obesity is, is kind of, an anachronism. It really doesn't really have much of an effect. Now, the one thing um, I think, you know, what, what, one of the things we're thinking about now with the advent of these new GLP-1 agonists, these new drugs that may stimulate weight loss, which is not a bad thing. Um, old people, when they lose weight, almost half of their weight loss is from probably from muscle. And, and so 
we need to really think about healthy ways for older people to lose weight and, and maintain the amount of muscle they have. And we can do a lot with diet, I think. But um, how do you suggest people do that with diet? Well, you know, you, you, your your colleague uh, Don Lehman has been a big proponent of of thinking about protein and its overall health effect. As I said, when older people lose weight, they lose a lot of muscle. And partly it's because if you think about it, an older person already has a low need for calories. And so if you think about an older person going on a, a two to 300 calorie a day deficit diet, that means that their protein intake is, is really low. It's probably below their the recommended dietary allowance for people that are in weight balance. And, and going on a low-calorie diet um, greatly reduces the amount of new proteins that are being made in your muscle. And so the way to stimulate protein synthesis in your muscle is simply by eating more protein. Now, obviously, it's a challenge because a lot of protein-containing foods also have fat. So eating a high-quality, low-fat protein is a challenge. And it, it, I mean, it's not impossible. Um, you know, there are a lot of low-fat, um, um, high-quality proteins that are uh, available and or um, the use of a, of a low-fat uh, protein supplement, like a whey protein supplement, during weight loss can really help ameliorate the, the loss of muscle. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. One of the things that happens, well, first of all, do you believe that there's a normal trajectory to aging? Lots of the, quote, healthy, sedentary population, you know, the older adults, that in and of itself, that inactivity is not healthy. My question to you is, do you believe that there is a natural traje trajectory of decline? For example, based on what you know now, based on now you're looking at D3 creatine, which has not been the standard, which I am hoping will now become the standard, do you believe the rates of sarcopenia muscle mass decline, right? They put it at what, three to eight percent per decade. Do you believe that that is accurate? We haven't even been measuring muscle appropriately. Yeah, it, it's a really good question. It's a really good question. And, you know, what, what I've been trying to do, you know, is get the public to think that sarcopenia is actually a, a problem, something that, that we, we should um, be able to do something about. You know, people think about Alzheimer's disease and write to congressmen and, and there's lots of money being spent. But unfortunately, people consider sarcopenia as an inevitable consequence of aging, and I don't think that that's true at all. One of the things that we see when, when we first did this, the first big study that we did using this method in about 1,300 men about 80 years old, uh, this was a large cohort study that had been followed for a long time, and by the and they were 80. And what I was struck by was the enormous variability in how much muscle they had. Some of the men had a lot of muscle. Some of the men had a little bit of muscle. And, um, and one of the reasons why we were able to see this striking relationship between the amount of muscle and outcomes is because of this enormous variability in how much muscle people had. And, and I think part of the thing that we need to understand is what accounts for that variability. You know, I, I think obviously 
one of those factors is how physically active we are. That's for sure. Um, that affects uh, uh, a lot related to function. Part of it is, is genetic. Part of it is diet. Um, and, um, and, and a lot of other potential factors. We know that, you know, um, when we've done some studies where we looked at what, what's the effect of, of putting an older person to bed. And um, when we first proposed to do these studies, um, one of our reviewers says, well, that's unethical. You can't do that. And then I came back and said, well, that's the number one therapy in the world. Bed rest. Bed rest is the number one therapy to treat everybody, especially old people in the world. And unless we understand what happens, um, <laughs> we're, we're not going to be able to prevent it. What we are able to show is that in 10 days of bed rest in healthy older people, about a kilogram of muscle is lost just from their legs. It's, it's amazing. And when you put young people to bed for 30 days, these are uh, studies done by uh, NASA, they lose about 400 grams. And so older people lose almost three times as much muscle in a third the period of time. So what accounts for that? Why, why is that? Um, one of the things that happens is that um, inactivity tends to stimulate insulin resistance or the risk of diabetes. And that has a really powerful effect on how efficiently your body makes muscle. So in 10 days, you know, older people that go to a hospital with, with normal glucose tolerance can be diagnosed with diabetes uh, due to their inactivity and their illness. Some older people have um, um, uh, inflammation, and that's another area that we really don't understand. There is this uh, syndrome that some people called inflammaging, that is some older people have markers of inflammation, even if they don't have any chronic diseases. And the question has always been, well, is that because they haven't been diagnosed with the disease or is that because there's something about aging? And, and I think that that's probably true, that, that that inflammation that I think is also variable from person to person then affects other factors, including um, muscle and muscle function. Um, and there are, uh, you know, a lot of other things that happen to us as we grow older. One of the, one of the things that I, I don't think is terribly well understood is we, we lose muscle cells as we grow older. Um, and probably around 50 is when we get an accelerated loss of muscle cells. And that's probably related to how the brain ages. We lose what are called motor units. That, that you know about that are essentially the, the connection between the, the brain and the muscle cells themselves. Whether we can do anything about that is, is not terribly clear because it's difficult to measure. But, but I think that um, as we do more and more and more and more molecular um, tools become available to us, and, and at, now that we have the ability to actually measure how much muscle someone has, we kind of understand what this um, variability is, is all about. How do you think that the individual listener at home, and you know, we have a lot of practitioners that listen to this, will something like D3 creatine be available to the provider? 
that's my hope. Um, I <laughs> just as a side, I've I formed a company. Um, uh, my partner and I um, have licensed the intellectual property. Um, we have IP in the U.S. and Canada and Europe, and it will be. Um, our first job is to convince the FDA that this measurement is important and actually means something. And then we hope that it'll be available to everybody and anybody. It's interesting that um, when we first published papers, I got um, a call um, from a colleague of mine who was at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And um, they really liked this idea. And so they funded us. They gave us a big grant to validate our method in infants and children. So the first study that we did uh, in this regard was, was taking really small infants. You know, our, our, our smallest was um, about a kilogram and measured muscle mass, um, just taking urine from their diaper. And we were able to measure the trajectory of gains in muscle mass while they're in the neonatal ICU. Um, we've now um, published papers in boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And, and for the first time, the, the Muscular Dystrophy Association is funding us to do a longitudinal study in boys with uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy to use this measurement perhaps as a, as a marker for uh, disease progression. You know, again, it's a completely non-invasive. They just swallow a, a little liquid or swallow a capsule. We take a urine sample and we know how much muscle they have. So my, my hope is that, you know, if we get the hurdle past the, the um, FDA, that anybody can can uh, have this measurement. You can, you can measure your children, which I think, it, you know, it's probably a good measurement of, of healthy growth, how much muscle children make. It's, it's, it's perhaps a marker for risk of uh, obesity. So, so I think that we'll hopefully have a new day where this method is inexpensive and, um, and uh, non-invasive, that people can, can do it. And, and I think that it probably will let us know, um, especially with older people, that their disability or risk of disability is due to muscle and perhaps not other kind of neurological problems that are also um, more prevalent. Now that we're able to measure muscle mass directly, skeletal muscle mass directly, do you think that there will be a way to predict an optimal amount? As you said before, there is so much variation from the individual. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, another really good question. And, and what we're trying to figure out is... Is there a um, a cut point? And and you know, in our initial studies, what we see is, for example, in men that have um, less than thirty percent of their body is muscle, almost all of them have um, indicators of disability. So I think that now that we have women and we have uh, Framingham and we have African Caribbeans, I think in a couple of years. We'll be able to do exactly what you say. We'll know what the what the level is, the cut point is for serious um, uh, disability and development of, of disability over time. 
And then we'll be able to, for everybody, do our best to not get there. <laughs> you know, if we have a marker for, you know, whether my mom or whether my grandmother is not going to be able to stand up from a toilet or walk around, um, then we'll be able to do something about it. And I hope that there's a lot more research, you know, to, to try to find um, drugs that may help um, preserve muscle. But in the meantime, we know that there are things that we can do to help prevent that as well. We know that there are optimal diets. We know that uh, strength training, even in, as I said, in people that are 90 years old, we can triple their strength in 10 weeks. And so there's a lot that we can do. It's, it's not always easy. Um, and it would be better if we could give people a pill. But uh, right now, it's, there are things that we can do. And, and um, there are people that, that really maintain their function well, well into their 80s and 90s. That's brilliant. And I hope everybody listening, if you have an older family member, you should be sending this to them. But most importantly, if you're listening and you are confused, again, high quality dietary protein, resistance yeah. training, all critical. And this is from a extraordinarily well-established scientist. It's interesting because, you know, as it relates to speaking to the public, you're in the trenches doing a lot of these studies. You've played a pivotal role in many. I mean, we'll link a handful of your studies, but there are so many studies with your name on it. Uh, one could spend days and days reading them. But I want to I want to mention something that actually layers a another complexity. We're talking about skeletal muscle mass. One of the things that is seen is that when an individual is obese, they have more quote muscle mass, but we haven't discussed muscle quality. And you know, I'm thinking about the intramyocellular fat, the intramuscular fat there has to be an, another layer of not just looking at the skeletal mass itself, but the quality of that tissue. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's really important too. We, we published, as I, as I said, we had published this paper in, in obese um, older people and showing that muscle mass is an important predictor of, of how much muscle they have. And then we, went, we also had CT scans where we could look at um, – you know, what, what we call myosteatosis, which is the amount of fat that's found in muscle. And surprisingly to me, I guess maybe not to everybody, is that it was an independent predictor of how, how strong they were. So for older people, especially for, um, well, for all older people, I think, there is this uh, increase in the amount of intramyocellular fat. Um, and um, it's not just you know, in the spaces between muscle cells, but it's actually in the muscle cells themselves. And there, so there is an aspect of muscle quality that, that, that's affected, and, and we're now just beginning to understand it. You know, for example, we know that weight loss can reduce the amount of fat that you have. Whether or not it can reduce the amount of fat that's in your muscle is not very well understood and poorly measured. We know that um, you know, if you, if you lose weight and exercise when you lose weight, you lose more 
visceral fat, the fat that's in your liver and, and in, your, in your viscera, whether or not that translates to loss of, of, of fat in your muscle is, is a really good question that, that you have. And I think it's important. We just don't know enough about it right now. I Special thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. I love Inside Tracker, and here's why. It is so important for you to understand exactly what is going on within your body, your own personal biomarkers. There's nothing more powerful than having information. With accurate information, you can course correct. People age at different speeds. Your biological age versus your chronological age are different, and it is so critical to understand what is happening under the hood. Now, I have used Inside Tracker. I've also used their blood work services, meaning someone came to my house. It was super duper easy. You can either get your blood drawn in a lab or you can get a mobile blood draw. They have also recently added three new hormone markers, estradiol, progesterone, and TSH. These are all really critical indicators for what is happening within your body. TSH is the most sensitive marker to address thyroid function for men and women. So head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion, and you'll get 20% off. I typically recommend individuals do blood work quarterly, and that is really helpful so that you can track everything. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion and get 20% off the entire store. Thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. Today, I want to highlight Full Mega, which is an omega-3 fish oil. Omega-3 essential fatty acids are very important. And if you're like me, don't eat a lot of oily fish. So for me to get a robust source of omega-3 fatty acids is really hard, which is one reason why I love Fulmega. If you are not taking an omega-3 supplement, I think that this is one of the most critical things that you can do. Let me tell you a little bit about it, why you should have it. EPA, DHA are two healthy fats. They are very important for brain function, heart health, and muscle. First form, uses cold water, wild-caught Icelandic mackerel, herring, anchovies, and sardines in the formulation of Fulmega. And no, you don't taste it. This is a real positive because that's one of the big things that people talk about when it comes to fish oil. I think you will love this product. We use this at home and this is Fulmega. Go to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. That's firstform, one S-T-P-H-O-R-M dot com slash Dr. Lion and get your full mega. It is part of the foundation series. Truly, truly exceptional. Mm. There's a lot of complexity. That, there's a lot of discussion about the, you know, intramyocellular fat, also ceramides. Yes. There's a lot of changes from right. potentially decreased well, flux. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean... Fat is also associated with inflammation, hmm. and so these so-called ceramides that are that are found in, in adipose tissue and in muscle are thought to be somewhat markers of, of inflammation that's due to fat. And, and as I said, inflammation itself causes insulin resistance and downregulates protein synthesis and accelerates the breakdown of, of proteins in, in muscle. So they're all. So if I mean, you were to target, yeah, and if you were to target the key, kind of the linchpin 
it would make sense that the linchpin would be skeletal muscle because we can see. Exactly. And that's right. I mean, muscle is the primary site where glucose is disposed of. When you eat carbohydrate, almost all of it goes right to your muscle. And um, so you, you drink a 16-ounce uh, Coca-Cola, all of that um, glucose goes right into your muscle. So muscle, and, and if you're insulin resistant, then it causes a rise in your blood glucose levels that stimulates insulin production and a host of other metabolic effects that are not so great. So muscle is the, is the primary site that, that I think is the, is the effector of all these age-related changes. As you said, it's the longevity organ, not just for function, which is awfully important, but for right. a lot of other things. When it comes to tackling insulin resistance, there is discussions on both ends of the spectrum, I think, and the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Does, you know, there's some evidence to suggest, uh, I understand that these were CLAMP studies from Gerald Schulman uh, looking at 18-year-old inactive college students that, uh, you know, brought to light insulin resistance and skeletal muscle. Is it about the insulin resistance and skeletal muscle first as the primary site of glucose disposal, or is it a hepatic issue? Is it a liver issue? Is it somewhere in the middle? Have you thought much about where? Yeah, well, we, we, we did, um, we've done a couple of studies along those lines. One was an interesting study that we published a few years ago. We took older people that had insulin resistance that were one step away of, from diabetes, that impaired glucose tolerance. And we put them on a very low-fat diet that was relatively high in protein and, and told them, eat however much food you want. And then after three months, we found that they lost about a pound of, of weight a week. And they were far, far more insulin sensitive just from a, just from a simple uh, shift away from fat. And, and, you know, most of us eat a pretty high fat diet, or many of us do, and, um, and a lot of saturated fats. But the, the fact is, is that it affected both hepatic and, and um, uh, peripheral insulin resistance. And in our bed rest studies, we, we measured, uh, we did clamp studies, and we measured the insulin resistance in the liver and the, and the muscle. And surprisingly, to us is that there was a big increase in hepatic insulin resistance as a result of bed rest. And it, it, there's kind of a, as you suggest, a, a kind of an interaction between the liver and muscle um, that is complex <laughs> enough that it, it, it's just important to say that, that, that it is, but, but um, that's where, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, interest right now. I mean, there's a lot of interest in, in for example, use of metformin as a as a as a way to to treat aging, I'm not necessarily certain that that's that's a great thing. But metformin has an effect of of um, reducing hepatic insulin resistance. Yes, it is something that we use in clinic all the time. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, again, now with these new GLP one agonists that are available, those really make the biggest impact. Uh, but uh, metformin is. Been around for yeah, no, metformin has been around for a long time. Yeah. It, it's the one drug that is, is kind of a, um, uh, 
simulates um, caloric restriction. We know that caloric restriction does increase uh, <clears throat> maximal lifespan in rodents. Um, and we know that in the diabetes prevention trial that metformin um, can, and people that are insulin resistant can prevent diabetes. And so it's, it's an inexpensive drug that doesn't cause weight loss, but it can prevent some of the complications. Yeah, the, the, the GLP-1 agonists, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. I have a, a colleague at, um, who runs the obesity clinic at Harvard. Uh, her name is Caroline Apovian. I don't know if you know Caroline. Mm-mm. She said there's a year-long wait right now just for people to come into her clinic <laughs> because of these um, GLP-1 agonists. It's, it's, um, it's going to change the face of medicine, I think. Yes. And if an individual is consuming enough protein and doing resistance exercise, then they can preserve. Yeah, that's right. In fact, we're writing a grant right now to really kind of understand the, the, the role that GLP-1 agonists may have on the loss of muscle mass um, and how best we can preserve it, whether dietary, increasing your dietary pro, uh, protein is sufficient um, to help prevent it or you need activity as well. Yeah. Uh, with all the talk in the media about these, and for the listener at home, the GLP-1 agonists, these are the Ozempic and Wagovi. Mongerno is a, is a combination product of GIP and GLP. I have not been able to find any mechanism of action that these GLP-1 agonists negatively affect skeletal muscle. No, there, there's not. And I've been doing a lot of search, <laughs> research, and, and partly it's because I think that the drug companies have not been terribly interested in measuring it. Um, we know that it causes a pretty significant loss of fat and weight, um, and we hope that we'll be able to measure um, muscle uh, loss with these, but but it's a, re- it's a very important question. Mm. Do you think that there are going to be a handful of biomarkers that can look at skeletal muscle health above and beyond mass, for example, myokines? Yes, um, I, I think that there are. There are some, some interesting ones that are coming along the way um, uh, that, that seem to be associated with uh, longevity that come very, very specifically from muscle. So I think that we'll find that there are biomarkers that are highly predictive of outcomes. You know, the, the, the issue with biomarkers is, is how strong a relationship uh, is there. But I think that now that we have the ability to look at um, a host of biomarkers that are, as you say, not just the amount of muscle. Once, you know, it's interesting, once we understand the role of muscle mass, then we can begin to explore all of the other potential biomarkers and how powerful and strong they are. And I think that that there's a there, there will be a new day, and and, and a, there is a development of new drugs that target some of these myokines that we know have an effect on muscle and bone and, and metabolism in general. I hope that the listener understands what a important conversation is that this is that we're having because up until this point all the literature the majority of the literature has really looked at lean body mass as a surrogate for muscle mass and now for the first and so because of this 
And because of the issues with understanding skeletal muscle, we've really downplayed skeletal muscle mass, just the, the tissue, just the organ, the mass of the organ system. What you're bringing forth, and one of the reasons I was so grateful that you were open to coming on the podcast is this information is going to take a decade to come out to the public. And if we can collaborate and come together, and I can reach into the uh, you know, academia, to that ivory tower and bring it out to the masses, it will allow individuals to begin to rethink all of the information that they are getting. Because it doesn't, you know, stand on, you know, we always stand on the shoulders of giants, but sometimes a researcher or, or a group of collaborators come in and actually blow up the, the way in which it had been thought of in the past. And that's exactly what you guys have done. Well, I, you know, I, I think um, it's interesting that I wrote a book along with my colleague, Irv Rosenberg, in the early 90s called Biomarkers. <laughs> and, and our central premise was that all of the things that had been thought of as biomarkers of aging, um, like um, bone density and um, um, blood pressure and um, insulin resistance, were, were not biomarkers for aging really at all, but 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 we're biomarkers for kind of how we go about living our lives, and I think that you know we, we now probably understand that that you know what the effect of aging is specifically. I think for the first time we can really understand what the role of real aging is, as opposed to you know you know what you breathe and what you eat and how physically active you are. So I think that um, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of interest. Yeah. If you were to, yeah. sorry, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Um, there's a little bit of a lag. So if the listener is getting frustrated for interruptions, this is a new studio here. There's there's a slight a slight lag. When you think about designing an optimal diet to protect to protect skeletal muscle mass and to think about longevity, for you, what would that be? <laughs> you know that. It, I think that there are a couple of um, pieces of dietary advice that, you know, that it, it is true for everybody that, you know, number one is reduce the amount of saturated fat that you eat. That's probably has the biggest single effect. Increase your consumption of, of high um, quality protein, eat more fish, um, increase your consumption of omega-3 fatty acids, and um, and stay away from refined uh, sugars. And th those are, they're they're fairly simple, I think. But you know, nutrition is one of those areas. I, I, I know that because you're you do what you do. You know that everybody has a different idea, a different opinion about what the best possible diet might be. And you know the the. Um, so-called Mediterranean diet is a, is a terrific diet, and it, it was a diet that was necessitated because the, the people that were eating it were poor, and and they they had to rely on increased amounts of vegetables and fish. And we know that in every society where that gets more more money, I guess more affluent, 
there's an increase in saturated fat intake and an increase in, in the diabetes and heart disease. And so that th those are the things that I think um, probably have the, the most uh, biggest effect. The NIH is sponsoring um, some large trials, the National Institute on Aging, to understand what the long-term effects of um, caloric restriction might be. And, and there have been a couple of published, they, they, they spent about $30 million on a big study called Calorie, two years worth of uh, caloric restriction. And, amazing, and these were in, in uh, men and women who were not obese and not old. So, and, um, and so they didn't have any indices of chronic disease. And so they, they found, you know, as you might expect, some improvement in insulin action. But the thing that I, I thought was an adverse effect is that they lost a considerable amount of lean mass. They didn't measure muscle necessarily. And so I, I worry that this, the idea of caloric restriction, however it may be manifested, um, if it's not done well, and I think that there, there's an NIA is going to sponsor some large caloric restriction studies with optimal diets. Um, protein seems to be really important in, in that regard. So, in, you know, ideal diets for aging is, is, a, is a, a big, important, and moving target because the ch things change as we grow older. It's hard to maintain a, the optimal diet if your calorie needs go down. You know, if you only need 13 or 1400 calories a day to maintain your body weight or you're trying to lose weight, it's more difficult to, to get all the things that you need, especially micronutrients. Yeah. I have two thoughts about what you said. I would love to hear more. Do you think, so the body makes saturated fat. My question is, is it a saturated fat issue or is it a total caloric load issue, number one? Uh, so I'll let you answer sure. that one and then I have another question for you. I think um, saturated fat in and of itself uh, is bad, and bad in a number of ways. Um, you know, we, we can make um, rats uh, uh, diabetic in a week by just giving them a high saturated fat diet. It, 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 it's... It has a pretty bad effect. And we know that um, increasing your consumption of omega-3 fatty acids can actually have some improve, some improvements in health. Um, you know, those are large kind of epi studies. And so longitudinal studies are still not terribly well um, documented. So, I mean, the, the thing about good fats versus bad fats is that all fats have are highly calorie dense, as you suggest. Whether you eat saturated fats, if you re, if you reduce it and then replace it with um, olive oil, you'll still get, stay fat. <laughs> so, so I think <laughs> you know there are good fats that can really help reduce inflammation, for example. Uh, saturated fat probably increases uh, inflammation, inflammatory markers, but uh, the problem with fats is that they all um, are calorie dense. It sounds as well, if it's a, sure. a combination. Yeah. 
it sounds as if it's somewhat of a it sounds a, somewhat of a combination. Uh, certainly, sir, some people would it would not be ideal if their diet is high in saturated fat. And quite frankly, I do agree with you. Calorie control and potentially choosing leaner cuts of of meat and leaner cuts of protein. Then that leads to my next question. Is you mentioned high quality protein, high quality protein as it relates to aging, high quality protein as it relates to muscle. And there is a lot of discussion about how protein can be detrimental and it's easily replaced with lower qualities of protein. I'm curious as to how you see that fitting yeah. in. Well, the, again, as it relates to longevity. Part, part of the problem has been that consumption of proteins has also been associated with the consumption of fats. When you, again, when you think about large epi studies, the people that generally have a higher protein diet also have a higher fat diet. And, and so it's, it's been difficult to kind of separate the effects of one from the other. As, as I said, when we did a study where we maintained dietary protein intake at about 20% of calories, but reduced fat intake to less than 20% of calories and increase their carbohydrate intake, they lost weights and they became more insulin sensitive. So, um, you know, every macronutrient has a different metabolic effect. So, for example, when you eat fat, there's there's no, no what's called a thermic effect. When you eat Carbohydrate and protein, there's what's called the thermic effect of feeding that, that your colleague Don Lehman has done a lot of research uh, at, at. And what that means is that when you eat protein, your body processes it. And in fact, the protein goes into, the, into increasing synthesis rates in muscle. And that has a caloric cost. And so when you eat protein and carbohydrate, some of that so those calories that you eat increases your metabolic rate. When you eat fat, there is no change. You know, <clears throat> over the lips and to the hips is absolutely the case for fats. There is no thermic effect of fat. And, and it, it again makes evolutionary sense if you think about it. Fat is by far the most calorie-dense food that we can eat. And you know, 50,000 years ago, nobody voluntarily uh, would decrease their food intake. And so in, during periods of time of uh, when humans went without food, they had to rely on their intrinsic fat stores. And, and we know that humans can go a very long period of time without eating any food because they can rely on their fat stores. Um, and so fat has an important evolutionary advantage, you know, during times of famine, but uh, it's, it's not, uh, <laughs> it, you know, during, during times when uh, food is uh, plentiful, um, it's, it's not so great. And as you say, there are a lot of lower quality proteins that are rich in fat, you know, and, and that's, that's part of the problem. It's hard to separate one from the other. And high quality protein is generally pretty expensive as well. 
And do you have a well? You know, I, I say salmon is almost a superfood because mm-hmm. it, you know, the fact that it has in it is is uh, <laughs> rich in um, you know omega threes and and it really has a lot of positive beneficial effects. Fish is is great. Um, I I think in, in a lot of ways because it's much lower in fat and the fat that is generally in fish is um is is the kind that that has a positive metabolic effect. Do you think that there is a certain gram amount? We know that the RDA is 0.8 grams per kg. Uh, Protage study came out. I know you've done a lot of work with the European working group with the sarcopenia. Do you think that um, how can we reconcile the actual amount of protein that we give as it relates to recommendations? First of all, I I think that... um, as we grow older, we probably need more protein. I mean, we need more protein on a per kilogram basis than young people do. And the reason for that is older people generally <clears throat> have lower circulating levels of what we call anabolic hormones like testosterone or growth hormone. <clears throat> and so muscle is not as efficient at making proteins. And so um, the, the, the RDA, the recommended dietary allowance, as you know, is 0.8 grams of protein per kilo day. When we put healthy old people on that amount of protein and give them the calories they need to maintain their weight, they lose muscle. So I think that, um, you know, high quality protein at the level of about 1.2 to 1.5 grams of protein per kilo day is probably a very safe amount. There's very, very little evidence that even eating more than that has any detrimental effects on your kidney or any other, you know, unless you have renal disease to start with, uh, eating more protein probably has very little um, side effects and bad side effects, I think. I would agree. And the evidence would support that. There is likely support also for protein turnover. Um, I haven't ever seen any data that relates to too high yeah, consumption no, it's, it's of dietary I've protein. Looked at, you know, um, looked at the literature and we know that some athletes, especially power athletes, they consume massive quantities of protein. I mean, you know, two, three grams of protein per kilo a day. And yet none of them really report having kidney disease or any other bad effects because generally they have an extremely high um, energy requirement, so they remain pretty lean. Hmm. You mentioned something earlier uh, as it relates to circulating hormones, and you also had mentioned that we don't have treatments yet for sarcopenia. But the obvious in, in my mind, and I know that you have a study coming out with uh, a mutual uh, colleague, Dr. Ellen Binder, on sure. the effects of testosterone. And, you know, you do have a great paper here uh, that is open access. We'll link it. And this is the effects of testosterone supplementation, body composition, lower body muscle function during severe exercise and diet-induced energy deficit. This was a proof of concept, a single-centered randomized control trial. I really liked it. This was uh, military uh, based. So the military individuals are always early adopters. But do you think that there is a place for 
testosterone or some kind of hormone replacement in the treatment of myosteatosis and or sarcopenia yeah, and or frailty. You know, I, when I was at GSK, I worked towards developing what's called a, a, a SARM. It, it, it's, it's a selective androgen receptor modulator. And, and these are drugs that are selective in stimulating the androgen receptor in muscle, but don't have the side effects of testosterone. So, so that you could potentially give them to women. The problem with testosterone is that, you know, it, it's only available to men who are hypogonadal and not available to women, um, only in Europe as a, you know, kind of a female Viagra. Um, but but the, the SARMs, I think, show great promise. They're small molecules that can be taken orally and they stimulate muscle protein synthesis. They're not in the market yet, I think there are some other ones that are probably along the way that that, that show real promise. But <clears throat> testosterone is a good one. The one that you talked about is is um, it's interesting for uh, Navy SEALs and and, and um, soldiers who are in extreme environments where they have to do a lot of physical activity and don't have time to eat. You know, they they don't eat very much. They become hypogonadal. They, they, their testosterone levels go down, and so there's an accelerated loss of, of muscle. Um, and so we did this study to kind of simulate that. We, we took young men and, and simulated that effect by greatly increasing how active they are, decreasing the amount of food that they did, and gave half of them um, um, a testosterone and, and half um, placebo. And, um, you, you know, during the severe caloric deficit, uh, there was very little effect on muscle, I think, because there was enormous decrease in muscle protein synthesis rates. But when they were allowed to eat ad libitum, the, the group that had the testosterone gained a lot more muscle back. So uh, testosterone has a powerful effect on muscle. If many men who are hypogonadal, they, they become sarcopenic because they have low testosterone levels, and those men um, um, you know, benefit from the use of testosterone. But I think that there are other potential drugs that are coming along the way that may have um, very positive effects, without, hopefully without mm. the side effects. Uh, different than the SARM. So, for example, a SARM would be LGD. Um, there's, a, a, I think that there's a handful of of SARMs that are have. Been yeah, there have been a number that are that are in uh -huh. development. There's one that I I worked with called NovoSARM, and um, that they they went to trying to you know a lot of the research in muscle for reasons I, I won't get into, um, except to say that the FDA has been reluctant to consider sarcopenia as a treatable indication. The, the, the drug companies have moved towards cachexia, which is a loss of muscle secondary to disease. It's a much, much more difficult um, clinical situation, especially in patients with cancer, for example, that become anorectic and they profound inflammation um, there was one that Inovosarm seemed to have a pretty positive effect there, but the, the, the trial didn't get uh, past the finish line in phase three. So I think that there are, 
there are some along the way. And another one that we haven't really discussed that is highly, highly prevalent in older women, perhaps due to sarcopenia, is, um, is, is um, incontinence, urinary stress, urinary incontinence. We know that that's related to the atrophy of pelvic floor muscles, um, which is also associated with uh, sarcopenia. And um, the, their, these, these androgen receptor modulators may have some effect on helping to stimulate pelvic floor muscles. But we know that, again, ec exercises of the pelvic floor muscles can treat this. And it's, you know, it's enormously prevalent. Almost 70% of women over the age of 70 have some degree of stress urinary incontinence. Yeah. And what ultimately we're seeing is there are so many drugs marketed and utilized for obesity, treating fat tissue, and maybe one or two, a handful, maybe five drugs treating well, I think issues that's, with that's where muscle. Uh, I hope that we can get the public to, to really um, become advocates because, you know, that amount of money that the Alzheimer's Association has been able to raise has been enormous. They're one of the largest charitable organizations in the country. The, the number one issue that Congress, number one health issue that Congress cares about are is Alzheimer's disease. As a result, they've earmarked a specific amount of research uh, to the National Institute on Aging that has to go towards Alzheimer's research, almost half of their budget. And that's really, really because of public pressure. And, and you know, if, I don't say that it's wrong. I think it's great. There have been new Alzheimer's drugs that have been approved that have very, very little effect <laughs> on, on cognitive function, but yet they're approved by FDA. And that's because of advocacy. Uh, as you say, I think that the loss of muscle is kind of an existential threat, uh, overwhelming almost everything else. The number one risk factor for development of Alzheimer's disease is um, diabetes and obesity. And, you know, um, we know that even moderate amounts of physical activity, walking as little as three times a week, uh, has an effect on helping to prevent Alzheimer's disease. And so when we get down to it, Almost every age-related disease is related to muscle in some way or another. Well, Dr. Bill Evans, I, I think we should close it out there because that wraps everything that we spoke about up so nicely. I am grateful for your time. I feel like you are such an imp important figure in what's happening and the work that you are doing and have done is going to change the way that we think about muscle, the way that we now can go for, forward and research it. Thank you so much for everything that you are doing. If you have uh, not heard it yet today, I know that the world well, is very for grateful for you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. 
The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from a podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.